So at first glance, today's lessons seem quite uh, similar in, in effect in that the primary characters, Jacob in the first lesson and the widow in Jesus' parable, both appear to be very persistent characters, and they are. Uh, Jacob is persistent in his wrestling all night long with the uh, unidentified opponent, and the widow is persistent in going uh, to the judge for justice. But that's about where the parallel ends, because Jacob is largely a t- sort of figure we don't want to mimic in the life of faith, and the widow, as Jesus tells the story, certainly is. Let's spend just a little time on Jacob so you're tracking his story. His very name means schemer, and that's pretty much all you need to know about Jacob. He spends his whole life scheming to his own benefit wherever possible, including stealing the family birthright from his own twin brother Esau. He, in many ways, is a reprehensible character. No more so than in today's story. It doesn't jump out at you when you just hear it read, but I'll tell you what's going on there. So just before we got to today's reading, we're told that his twin brother Esau, from whom he's been estranged, think of the children's message, from whom he's been estranged, is approaching, coming, let's say, from this direction with 400 men on horseback. Jacob has zero men on horseback. This does not look good for him, but he's got a plan because it's Jacob. He's a schemer. He's always got a plan. And so his plan in this case is, here comes Esau from this direction. Here's the the river Jabbok. So what does he do? He sends his wives, his children, his flocks, his shepherds over to the other side of the river. In other words, how does he employ his own family as a human shield. They get to be the first ones to greet his really angry brother with 400 men on horseback. Meanwhile, he stays behind on the other side of the river, and too bad for Jacob, he doesn't sleep very well. He apparently has a sudden outbreak of conscience for maybe the first time in his life, and he spends the whole night wrestling. And the Bible is, the storyteller is awesome because the storyteller kind of tells us it's God, but never confirms that it actually is. And they wrestle and they wrestle. And of course, at some level, Jacob wins the wrestling match. He always convinces himself that what he's doing is the right thing. But now, maybe for the first time in his life, he's wounded by all of this. And his name is changed by it. And from this point forward, he is a different person, still imperfect. But finally, there is this bit of reconciliation ultimately with this Esau who is coming from the other direction, and maybe Esau gets more credit for that than Jacob should. Nevertheless, the story is important because really it is all of our stories. We've all convinced ourselves of the right of our wrong actions. At some point, we eventually have all struggled with that, and that has caused us some sleeplessness, and we all end up getting wounded by these things, and you carry the wounds with you forever. But sometimes there's a blessing in it as well. Sometimes part of the blessing is that the very wounds cause us to change for the better. It's a powerful, universal story, but if you want a faith hero, it's not Jacob. I don't know if, if, if you always think of it this way when, when you think about the biblical stories as they're read, but it, it's true, is it not, that history is, is pretty much written by the winners. 
Uh, that's a common phrase. So much of the history of the world in the last century has been written by us. We're, we as a culture, the American culture, have kind of been the winners economically and militarily and ideologically and politically, and that's not, not a bad thing. But, but we're used to understanding ourselves in history through our own lens. One of the things that's really different about the Bible is that it's, it's actually written from the underside of history. The, the most important parts of the, of the Old Testament, for example, are written from the Jewish exile in Babylon. In other words, from losers at the bottom point in their history. And all of the New Testament is written when Christianity is either just a blip on the map or is a persecuted minority religion within the Roman Empire. The Bible is written at some level by the losers on the bottom side of history. And as a result, I think sometimes we, not through our fault, but just due to our circumstance, do not fully appreciate what some of these stories are saying to us and how the characters are drawn for us, especially so, I think, in today's gospel lesson. So Jesus tells a story so that we don't lose heart and are persistent in our prayer. And he makes the, the hero of the story a widow. And this is the same Jesus who makes heroes in other stories. We've just read in the last couple weeks a good Samaritan, someone hated within the Jewish culture. Uh, uh, the, rich, the, the, the man Lazarus and the rich man in Lazarus story, uh, the, the hero is Lazarus, someone who is so poor that the dogs lick his wounds. That's the best he can hope for. And now this widow, and just the mention of that word in Jesus' world would have evoked an image that everyone would have related to, a person with absolutely no safety net, and she's already slipped off the trapeze. It's not as if people with no safety net no longer exist in our world. Uh, they exist in every color, every culture, every place, including southeast Wisconsin. I, I think sometimes we just, like, kind of fail to do the math. I mean, in the state of Wisconsin, for example, the minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. A, a lot of people still start at that wage, especially in service sector jobs. And, and, and most of the time, employers then consider full-time employment for someone at that wage level to be like 30 to 32 hours. Uh, and as a result, you, in many places, don't trigger benefits. Um, so if, if you're starting at that 7.25 an hour, 30 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, that gets you to $11,310. That's still $1,200 below the federal poverty level. And so a lot of times, if you're... If you're poor in this country, you're, you're cobbling together a couple of what we would think of as part-time jobs like that, and, and, and then you're, you're making enough to get by. But there's not much room for error. Uh, if you've never read the, read the book Evicted, uh, read it sometime. It's set in Milwaukee, and it's kind of this dispassionate just assessment of landlords and tenants and the sheriff's department and all these other players. And, and you get a little different sense of what the story is like told from a different part of life and existence. But in our culture, if, if you're not making much and suddenly you, your, your tooth hurts, it's a couple hundred bucks. If your car breaks down, it's a couple hundred bucks. If you're then a couple hundred bucks of making your rent for that month, it, it throws you off the trapeze and there's 
There's nothing there to catch you. If you're a widow in Jesus' time, back up. If you're a woman in Jesus' time, number one, your property, legally, first of your father, then of your, then of your husband. So your safety net, if you're married, is your parents, but they're probably dead. Lifespans aren't that long. It's your husband and it's your sons, not your daughters, because when they get married, uh, their allegiance goes to their husband's family. And the way Jesus tells the story, it, it seems evident that the widow has lost all of her safety net. Obviously, her husband is dead. Apparently, she has no sons or none old enough to care for her. And if they were poor to begin with, which was true of most people in that world, um, whatever the husband had made was quickly exhausted. And so this woman has no safety net. And what also happened when, when people have no safety net and no protection, they become easy prey for other people. That's a sad thing about the human species, but it's true. And so apparently this woman has been violated physically or emotionally or financially. And we know she has been because ultimately we learn she had a valid case and she brings it to the judge. Now Jesus actually doesn't tell us that much about the widow, but he, he tells us a lot about the judge just in a couple of words. What does he tell us about the judge? The first time he says it about the judge, he says, the judge did not fear God and had no respect for people. What are the two great Jewish commandments, by the way? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus immediately tells us that this judge is the worst possible human being. He's the exact opposite of who we're supposed to be. He does not care about God, and he does not care about his fellow human being. Plus, he's lazy because he doesn't do his job. The woman has a valid case, and time and again, he does not even bother to make a ruling, much less in her favor. But then Jesus, good storyteller that he is, gives us a little window into the judge's eye. Now we hear the judge say to himself, you know, I, I don't really care about God, and I care even less about human beings, but I'm getting so sick of this widow coming to me day after day. She's going to drive me crazy. I'm going to grant her justice in her case. And now think from the bottom side of history and think um, how powerful that story is. Because this woman has nothing going in her favor other than her own persistence. And think how often people on the other underside of, the, of life have a valid complaint against something, and no one even bothers to listen to them enough to, to even do something about it, much less to rule in their fa favor. But this woman, this woman kept coming after the judge. Surely, though, it would have been easier if someone had been on her side. One of the cool things about the story, only because it reflects how Jesus always treated people, and how Jesus always treated people is, is, is he just never related to them as the group they were a part of. He didn't relate to Roman soldiers as Roman soldiers, but as an individual. He, he met with an individual tax collector like Zacchaeus, with an individual Pharisee like Nicodemus. He didn't treat people as groups. He treated them as individuals. And you see that even in how he tells a story. In other words, think of the story, and, and what adjective does Jesus use for the widow? And the answer is, he never uses an adjective for the widow. 
It is enough for him in that world and time to simply say who she is, and that more than evokes in the audience minds her plight. It's interesting to me that, uh, you know, in, if you look at the Bible, usually Bibles create section headings, and in the section headings of the Bible, the widow always is described as the persistent widow. And she is. But when you think about this story in, in real life, if, if she has been violated and she takes that case to the judge who turns her down time and time and time again, is she just persistent? Don't you think she's probably a little angry? And then think of the stereotypes about that in our own world. And for sure they were functional in Jesus' world. In our world, think of all the stories that are told about male bosses who have a little bit of temper and are kind of abusive to their staffs, but they're visionaries and they're brilliant. But a woman who is a little angry and a little abusive to her staff, what's she? She's a Halloween time. She's a witch. But you know that that double standard exists in our society. And, and, and it would probably existed ten times more in, in Jesus' world. And interestingly, as he tells the story, I think he's purposeful in that he uses no adjectives for her. He doesn't need to fill in the blanks for us. Because in that world, people got it. The story is about so many things. And it's, it's not just about the poverty of the woman. I mean, it's about all the people that, that in some way are neglected, abused, forgotten, pushed to the side. And some of those people can be well-connected, powerful people, and some of those people can be people with no resources whatsoever. And in all of those situations, it's not as if the people who are somehow pushed aside get there with no fault of their own as a part of it. Plenty of life's wounds are self-inflicted no matter who you are or what station in life you're at. But if you think of some of your own self-inflicted wounds in life, don't they usually come when you're self-absorbed? Don't they usually come when you're cut off from a community? that could support you and love you and maybe warn you and stop you from doing the stupid thing you're about to do. To pray persistently and to be better together with someone who has no advocate. This is what Jesus is talking about. And he gets to the end of the story, and it's just like that story of the rich man and Lazarus, which he ends with the ironic and I think kind of sad note of even if somebody should rise from the dead, people won't listen to him. He said that of himself, probably. And he, he does the same thing with this story. What's the last thing he says? He says, but when the Son of Man, which is how he most often referred to himself, it means like the fully human one, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, having told you this, will I find anyone who prays persistently? Will I find anyone who seeks out the people who have no advocate and stands by them so they aren't alone? So that, in fact, you become a little part of their safety net? Sometimes you get more than you bargain for in life. So yesterday we were doing this little work project at the Christ the King campus. We were 
we rented this like 150 pound post hole digger and we were digging these four foot deep holes, 18 inches wide, so we could put in these poles that were gonna hold the lights that light the patio area. And there were several guys working on this from, from, from here, uh, Bill Rudy, don't see anybody else who was there. Uh, and then we were also helped by three guys from Cephas House. Now Cephas House is similar to Genesis House, an adult male recovery um, a place. It's a little different though than, than Genesis House, and that Genesis House is a place where you can self-admit, or sometimes it's a referral from the criminal justice system after perhaps a first encounter with the criminal justice system. Cephas House, the, the stakes are a little higher. It's always people who've had a criminal justice referral. Maybe it's somebody who's had like three or four DUIs and that's, that's why they're there. And so uh, now recovery is, is, is all the more imperative in a sense. So these three guys are there and, and, and it's, it's much harder work than we thought it was gonna be. And you know, I got home and I went straight to the Advil. This was like a three Advil job, people. <laughs> I don't know, Bill, I don't know how many you took, but man, I was so happy that we were through, still three pills in that bottle. It was like, uh, anyhow, so we were working really hard. And in the middle of this, I'm talking to one of these guys, and, and he, he didn't say that much, but one of the things he said was, you know, like, I'm, I'm almost done with my program, and, and I just wanted to do something good for somebody. And that's as deep as it went. But I, it, I sensed in what he was saying was just not that he wanted to do something good, but that recovery at some level is really focused on getting your act together. It's focused on yourself. And there was something good for him in that moment about, you know, being a part of this team and now doing something good. It wasn't just about him. And he doesn't live in this part of the state. And when he leaves, um, I don't know if he'll have a community to go back to, and you know that's, that's almost everything in recovery. There's got to be a community, the healthy one, to go back to. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Is he going to find you praying persistently for yourself and for others? Is he going to find you or me or anybody who've gotten beyond self and aren't like the judge. Because we actually do fear God and respect our fellow human being. And therefore, we have a place in life. We really have a place in life. It is to seek out anybody who is on the underside of history, maybe just one person. Think about the widow this week. Think about her plight. But mostly think about Jesus' question. May the answer be yes.